I was not supposed to clap. I am so sorry. Well, this is live. In case you were wondering, it's definitely live. And someone just yelled at me, preacher white boy from the production team. So I'm loving this. Welcome to Greenhouse. My name is John, one of the pastors here. And we are jumping into a brand new series called Mothers of the Messiah. Say it with me. Mothers of the Messiah. The production team's on point, which gets me excited. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. You're like, what in the world? Mothers of the Messiah. You're about to see. If you're ready, say, let's do this. Here we go. Matthew writes, This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. There's one of the mothers of the Messiah. You see, okay, cool. Um, Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab. So those of you who are about to have children, you're getting some great names here, Bible names, in case you were praying about that. Amminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. It's not just for dinner. Salmon was the father... You thought all the dad jokes were out in that video. They were not. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was... Rahab. We're going to talk about two of these mothers of the Messiah and see what God has to say. Would you join me as we pray? Jesus, speak to our hearts through your word and remind us of who you are and who you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. The Christmas sermon series this year, as Pastor Mike and I, we often do our sermon prepping together, the Christmas series from this year comes from where I'm sure all of your famous and favorite sermon series come from, the genealogies. The genealogies, the listing of the begets and the begats that everybody loves and or skips every single time. And here's why. As we move closer to celebrating, remembering the birth of Jesus, the Savior of the worlds, we were deeply intrigued by the way Matthew remembers and celebrates the coming of Jesus to the earth. We've got listed here what at first glance seems to be a standard genealogical record, which would have been typical in the ancient world. He's got 40 plus generations of male patriarchs, but he slides in there five women's names. Why? Now, you might start and say, well, I've heard, Pastor John, you've talked about a little bit before that in the, in, in the culture of the people of God, in Jewish culture, God commanded his people to venerate women, which was almost unheard of in other cultures in the ancient world. This is true, that what God told his people was certainly an elevated standard of the vision and the role of women in society, in the family, and in the world. This is true, but if it was just about a general veneration of women, why not have every single mother of the Messiah in the genealogy. Why these specific women? Why some of these specific Gentile women, which you will learn in this, have very seedy pasts and histories? What is God doing here? He's doing something profound. See, in the ancient world, genealogies functioned like ancient world resumes. This is how people would know who you were and what you were about. They would have a sense of who you are and what you're about based off of who your relations are, based off of who your families are. And so God, well knowing all of this, chooses to make this genealogy just as it is. Why? And here's my point, and I'm hoping we key in here. Because if we have ears to hear it, what can often seem like a very mundane, strange, boring, if we're being a little bit more circumspect and honest, snooze-inducing genealogical record of ancient peoples with weird names 
is actually a deeply profound moment where God is revealing something about himself through his resume. I don't want us to miss this, church. If we have ears to hear it, God is showing us who he is and reminding us who we are. Through this genealogy in Matthew, God is revealing something about himself, about his character, and about what it means to be in his family. Are you ready to dive into the mothers of the Messiah? All right, here we go. Two things about God's family through these first two mothers of the Messiah in the genealogical record. The first one is this. God's family operates by grace. Everybody say grace. Grace. Say gracia. God's family operates by grace. Now, the first mother of the Messiah that we're introduced to is this woman named Tamar. Tamar comes from Genesis chapter 38. I'm not going to have time to read the whole passage, but I would encourage you to check it out on your own time. I will give us a brief overview so that we're all on the same page. Hold on to your hats because it's about to get weird. All right. You have been warned. If you've got small children, I'm going to do my best to keep it PC because I know we are all on the interwebs right now. Here is the story of Tamar as is told in Genesis 38. Tamar's father-in-law is a man named Judah. Now, Judah sounds familiar if you've ever heard about the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus, right? That's who he is. This is that same Judah. What you might not have known is that Judah is a dirtbag. Judah is a really sketchy character, as we see highlighted in this story. In fact, it is Judah, in the story of Joseph highlighted earlier, that has the idea to sell his brother into slavery. You thought your family had drama. He sells his brother Joseph into slavery, and then to cap it off, he decides that he's going to go and do what God forbid his people to do, and he's going to marry a Canaanite woman. God said, don't marry the the foreign nations, not because God doesn't have a heart for ethnos, but because God knew that foreign nations would turn their heart away from God, which they did indeed do. That's Tamar's father-in-law. Now, she has a husband named Ur. Ur, we are not told much about him, other than he is so wicked that God kills him. I don't know what kind of skeletons you have in your closet and what kind of sketchy stuff you've done in your past, but you're still alive. What does that tell you about Ur? Bad, bad dude. So Ur dies. Judah, the father-in-law Judah, comes to Tamar and says, hey, listen, I've got another son. His name is Onan, and I want you to, to have relations, uh, the biblical word no. I want you to sleep with Onan to, uh, because she did not have children, and, and then you're going to be able to have future generations. Now, if that feels weird to you, uh, it's because it is a little weird. But in the ancient world, and according to Jewish law and custom, if a woman was a widow, she was almost ensured a bad spot in life. If she did not have future generations or posterity, especially sons, she was going to be in a tough spot. And so it was Jewish tradition and Jewish law for the, the next in line to, to take you know, his brother's wife, essentially. And so Onan does this, um, but Onan, like his brother, is a very sketchy character. Goodness gracious, last week I had to talk about eunuchs in service. Now i got to talk about this. Um, preach it. Onan, preach it, yeah. Oof. Onan decides to um, engage in adult actions with his brother's wife in a way that he can ensure that she does not bear children. I'm like, go ahead and leave it right there, okay? Don't you track it with me, right? And, and so he, he does this like very shady act over and over and eventually God is so fed up with it that God kills him too. 
If you need to know, like, don't, don't mess with widows is, like, the story there. Like, it says God is defender of widows and orphans. Like, don't mess with the widows because God might kill you. You can take that one to the bank. That one was for free. Um, so, so that goes down. Tamar is obviously, I mean, you talk about a dysfunctional family. So Judah, the father-in-law, comes back. He's like, okay, okay, okay. I know it didn't work out with, with, my, with son number one or son number two. But my third son, I know he's kind of young right now. But when he gets older, I'll give him to you as a husband. And the son gets older. And Judah does not come through on his promise. And so Tamar takes matters into her own hands. This is the Bible, by the way. I'm not making this story up. Uh, Tamar takes matters into her own hands, um, deceives Judah, dresses up as a prostitute, um, and seduces him and ends up getting impregnated by her father-in-law, Judah. I don't know the ramifications. Is that technically incest? I don't really know. Welcome to this story. Why have I had to preach this the last two weeks? Holy Spirit, help me. So she gets pregnant. Eventually, someone comes to Judah, her father-in-law, and says, hey, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, she, she's been a prostitute, and now she's pregnant. He says, well, that's it. We're going to have to put her to death. And what he did not realize is that he was actually the father. This is like Jerry Springer in the ancient world. And so she had gotten from him his staff and his seal, basically symbolic of his name. And when he sends to put her to death, she says, oh, by the way, the father of the baby is the person whose seal and whose staff this is. And he realizes, oh, snap, I'm the daddy. Let's go ahead and leave her alone. And the story ends. That is the story of Tamar. And we don't hear from her again. She is seemingly forgotten in the biblical account until she drops in Matthew chapter 1 the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. What in the world? What in the world is happening here? Why is Tamar in here? Are you tracking with me? Like, why is Tamar in here? And what is God saying? Because obviously, there's a point here. Tamar is wronged. I don't have all the time to get into all the nuances, but Tamar is deeply and unjustly treated. And then she deceptively takes matters into her own hands and makes it into the genealogy. Let me just pause for a second and tell you what the Bible is not saying here. This is not a prescriptive story of what of a recipe for success. Okay, So any of you students that are like, sweet, I just got to go be a prostitute, and then I'm going to make it into the genealogy of Jesus. No, do not do that. Please, let's read this with the proper hermeneutics. That is not, this is not telling you what we should do. This is not prescriptive theology here telling us what we should do. So what in the world is it? It's not a roadmap to success. In fact, we see the ramifications of this dysfunction and deception playing out for generations to come. In the scriptures, it says that God will visit the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. What we see in the story of Tamar is generations of deceptions passed down throughout the ages. Parents, take note on this one. You are not just living for yourself. Your future generations are going to reap the benefits, rewards, or dysfunction of your decisions. Whew. Check it. Jacob deceived his father Isaac to get his firstborn blessing. Then Jacob himself was deceived by his father-in-law Laban in this weird version of the ancient wife swap. Then Jacob's sons get deceived. Uh, Jacob's sons deceive him and they murder and, and about murder and they sell off Joseph. And now Jacob's son Judah deceives and is deceived by Tamar. And you thought your family had drama. You're like, all right, Pastor John, so why? Why? Why is Tamar included? Because apparently God needs you to know that his family is like your family. Messy. Messy. 
We've all got that family member, right? Everybody's got that uncle, got that aunt, right? Mine showed up to our wedding in a shepherd costume, right? Maybe you are that uncle or that aunt or that family member, right? We've all got this messy nature. Family is messy. Check this. Check, do, do not miss this. Family is messy, but when it comes to family, you're in because you're in. Not because you deserve it. Not because you've earned the family name. You get the family name because you get the family name. And what God is trying to reiterate through the story of Tamar is that his family is entered into by grace. Tamar clearly does not make it into the genealogy of Jesus on her great merits or exemplary character. Because God's family is not a meritocracy. God's family is entered into by grace, total undeserved grace of God. Here's the encouragement and reminder, and I need us to catch this this morning. If you're watching me online, if you're tuning in with me, if you're on your phone, wherever you're at, check this out. Here's what we need to be reminded of, that no matter how big the mess, Tamar's story, her family history, you want to talk about family trauma and drama, goodness gracious. And yet we see that no matter how big the mess, how twisted the story, Nothing is stronger than the grace of God. I need you to hear this. No matter how big the mess and how twisted the story, nothing is bigger than the grace of God. God's family operates by grace. By grace. Maybe you've been coming to Greenhouse for a little while and you're watching online and you're just like, man, I, I, I hear you, Pastor John. And man, I'm so motivated. Like once I get my stuff together, once I get my life together, once I clean myself up, man, I love it. I'm all in. That's not how it works. We can never clean ourselves up enough. We can never get right enough. Tamar can never be good enough. All we like Tamars have gone astray. Maybe you didn't do all the stuff she did, hopefully, but we've all had, we all have baggage in our lives. We enter into God's family by grace. You don't need to earn it. You just need to come home. Because God's family is what you were made for. I had a conversation with a guy a few weeks ago, and, and man, it, it, it just reminded me why I do this. I didn't have grand ambitions to be a, uh, some professional Christian and have a, you know, be a pastor. And I, I just jumped in because Jesus said, son, this is what I want you to do. And I said, sir, yes, sir. And I was talking to a guy and, and he said, hey, man, I, I, just wanted to, I just wanted to stop and say something to you. So a couple months ago, somebody from the church it just happened to run into him. Basically, they, they were out doing their thing and they felt like God prompted their heart to go and speak to this stranger. And they started speaking to this stranger. And lo and behold, this stranger hadn't wanted to be around God or church in over two decades. But, but they struck up a friendship, he said. And, and that friendship turned into me coming to church. And after coming to church, I opened my heart to Jesus and I gave my life to Jesus and I got baptized. And, and my wife and I, our marriage was on the rocks. We were on the verge of divorce at that very moment. And, and God's now restored our marriage. And our marriage is better than anything I could have imagined. And, and now I'm following Jesus and my wife wants to follow Jesus and my kids are following Jesus. This happened, friends, in the last few months right here at Greenhouse. He said, and I just wanted to say thank you. Yeah. I'm like, bro, that's amazing. I, I, you, I know you're not, you know, it's not, I couldn't do that, right? He's like, I know, I know, I'm still like getting a feel for the church thing. I know it's God, but like you guys, I'm like, you're right. It's God through you guys. And I said, you know what? It's not just that God has done some incredible things in your life and in your family. He's going to use you to see those same incredible things in other people. He's like, what, what do you mean? I said, bro, you know what kind of a punk I was before Jesus? I said, you know, I was, I was doing drugs. I was an idiot, hard-headed, running my life into the ground. And Jesus rescued me. And now he's using me to help rescue others. And he's going to do the same thing in you. This week, he got to lead one of his coworkers to the Lord. Uh -oh. 
this week. He's like, it's true. I'm like, it's true. It's all true. God's family operates by grace, and he's inviting you into his family and into his story, not, check this, not because of your goodness, but because of his grace. And when it comes to this first mother of the Messiah, Tamar, God took a Tamar who had been wrongfully and unjustly treated, who had been overlooked and intentionally forgotten on earth, but she was not forgotten in heaven. And God saw her and he named her forever into the genealogy of the Messiah, letting her and you and I know for all time there's room for you and his family. God's family operates by grace. Come on, somebody. That's good news. That's good news. You're like, great, great, Pastor John. That's awesome. You seem very excited. I think you spit in the camera three times. How do we access this amazing grace? Great question. If point number one is God's family operates by grace, point number two is God's family operates by grace through faith. Thank you, JC. Grace through faith. The second mother of the Messiah that we're introduced to is a woman named Rahab. And if the first story was colorful, we'll just continue in that trajectory. Rahab is a Gentile former prostitute. Okay, this is who Rahab is, listed in the genealogy of Jesus. Not only would it be wildly uncommon to have women listed in what was almost exclusively a patriarchal genealogy, but this is a Gentile woman unheard of. Not only is she a Gentile woman, she is a Gentile former prostitute. What in the world is God doing? Let's look at it. The story of Rahab comes to us from Joshua chapter 2. Encourage you to read it and go through it on your own. Maybe Genesis 38 and Joshua chapter 2 is going to be your reading for this week as you dig more deeply into the story. But I'll summarize it so we're all on the same page. God's people are moving through the promised land. He has promised them this land. And basically, as they encounter different cities and people groups and territories, some of them surrender peacefully. Some of them choose to fight. Now, Rahab is a prostitute living in the walled city of Jericho. In fact, we find out that she is living kind of right there on the wall in the midst of this busy city center. And Jericho, as this walled city would be, they choose not to surrender, but to fight. Joshua is instructed by the Lord to send out two spies into Jericho, sort of get a sense of the lay of the land and what's happening. These two spies go in and they end up finding lodging at Rahab, the prostitute's house. They're there, they're hiding out. And what we find is that the people all around, the people of Jericho and the other ancient world peoples have heard about this God of Israel, this God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They've heard the stories and and she's like, listen, here's what's happening. And, and everyone's kind of heard about you. And this is what she says. She said, listen, I know it's not just that Rahab hears a story. Rahab believes. She says, I, we've heard about your God. She says this, and I know that your God is the God of all of the heavens and all of the earth. She says, Here, here's what I want you to do. The king had basically found out that these spies were there. And he was like, hey, he sends word to Rahab. Hey, tell me where the spies are. We want to take them and, you know, take them out. You know, and, and, and so Rahab says, listen, if you will spare my life and the life of my family, I'm going to hide you and protect you and let you go because I know God is going to give you the city. She says, but, but if, I, if I do this, I need you to spare my life. And so they make an agreement. She hides the spies, send the king's men on a, on a sort of a wild goose chase, and they, ba and they basically tell her, listen, God has seen what you've done, and we are going to honor this commitment and agreement. Here's what we need you to do. She's going to let them down from the window in her home, which is right there on the wall. She says, go run, hide in the forest for a couple days, and then you'll be fine. They say to her, okay, that sounds good. Tie this scarlet thread, this scarlet fabric from your window, 
And if you do this, make sure all of your family members and all of your household is inside of your home. And when we invade and when God gives us the land, no one in your family will be hurt. But if you don't do that, it's on you. That's basically the agreement in my own words. And so it happens just as they say. Rahab and her family are spared. They become God-fearers. They, they unite with the people of God. And for all time, we hear of the story of Rahab. Now, of all the possible mothers, the question is, why is Rahab mentioned? Once again, because God is trying to show us something through his genealogy, through his ancient world resume about who he is and what he values. Rahab's story comes for us from Joshua chapter 2, but it picks back up in the New Testament in Hebrews. There it is, mom, in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 actually reveals to us the mystery of what the big deal is with Rahab. Now, if you've maybe read it before, Hebrews chapter 11 is what's called the hall of faith. We're given these, these huge Bible characters by faith, Abraham, and by faith, Moses, and by faith, Isaac. And then it says, by faith... Look at it in verse 31. And by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Maybe you've thought before, man, I, I, don't, I don't do the church thing. I don't do the religious thing because, man, church people, they, they can't handle mess and they can't handle baggage. And, man, if they knew my past, there's no way they would accept me. Welcome to the family of God and the prostitute Rahab. Like, that could have been left out, to be clear. God could have just said, by faith, Rahab. No, he had to let people know, oh, by the way, I haven't forgotten what she used to do, and I still love her. So much so I'm going to write her in my story twice, twice. See, Rahab is a story all about faith because God's heart is moved by faith. Now, here's the thing. When it comes to faith, everyone has their own idea of what faith means. Culture has their idea. We'll sing songs about it. But God is clarifying through Hebrews chapter 11. He says, listen, when I'm talking faith, I want faith like Rahab. I don't, I don't just want you to kind of pick your own definition. I want you to have faith like Rahab. And all the people had heard, apparently, in the ancient world about the God of Israel, but Rahab believes. How do we know? Check this. We know she believes because of what she does. Because of what she does. What, what essentially the writer of Hebrews is highlighting is the same thing that, that it says in the book of James, that biblical faith is not merely theory, it is active Rahab is one of the embodiments that God uses for the faith he's looking for. Sort of the James 2, faith without works is dead. God is merciful and full of grace, and his heart is moved by faith. God is merciful, and he's full of grace, but his heart is moved by faith. Active, real, proven, genuine by our actions. You're like, all right, Pastor John, so what's the relationship between faith and actions? I'm so good, glad you asked, Ryan. The order matters. If we're talking horticulture or agriculture, let me ask you a question here. Which comes first, the root or the fruit? The root, right? You're like, I don't really do planting, but the root. Okay, so according to scripture, faith is the root and actions are the fruit. Faith is the root and actions are the fruit, which means if your faith is alive, you'll inevitably have both the root and the fruit. But the starting point, the beginning of it all, is a root of genuine living faith. And God's family operates by grace through faith. Let me ask you a question. When is the last time you did a fruit test to determine your root health? 
This is great. If you're watching with a bunch of people, maybe some friends from microchurch, this would be a great question to dialogue on when the service is over. When's the last time you did a fruit test to determine your root health? You're like, what in the world is a fruit test? All right, good question. Fair. Asking questions like, how does the fruit of the Spirit look in your real life? Not your church life, not your bless God, I'm so, I'm doing, I'm talking about your real, like the, the life right now, when you're having church right there in your room and may or may not have just screamed at your kids, right? How does the fruit of the Spirit look in your real life? When you're stuck in traffic, when your boss is unloading on you, how does the fruit look in your real life? Is it abundantly present? Is it increasing more and more or is it decreasing less and less? Do a fruit test. How does the fruit of your time break down? If you looked at your time, if someone looked from the outside, is it a little bit of God time and a lot of bit of you time? If someone looked from the outside, would they clearly see, man, this person must love God because God clearly gets the first fruits of their time. Number three, how does the fruit of your spending add up? If someone looked at your financial decisions from the outside, if they got up from 30,000 feet and got an overview of it, would it show a love for God and an abundantly clear laying up of treasures in heaven? Or is it much more focused of the comforts of earth? Why is Rahab explicitly listed in the genealogy as one of the mothers of the Messiah? Because God is showing us that a huge part of his family lineage that he loves, a huge part of what moves his heart, a big part of that ancient resume is faith. Everybody say faith. 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 And I'm so encouraged looking at these first two mothers of the Messiah to be reminded that God is not afraid to highlight messy people. Can I get an amen and thank God? God is not afraid to highlight messy people because that's us. But through these mothers, he's showing us what moves his heart. And it's not perfection and it's not performance. It is grace and faith. Here's the application point. And I'd encourage you to break this down. You could talk more in the chats after service. You could talk more if you're watching with your family or if you're watching with some people from microchurch. Today, I want us to hear, to receive, and to respond. I want us to start by receiving his grace. It all begins by receiving his grace, unmerited, undeserved, in spite of your mess, in spite of your sin, in spite of your failure, and in spite of your credentials, if you've got a heart of humility, do not miss this. This is unique to the way of Jesus. When we talk about different faiths, well, all faiths are pretty much the same. They're pretty much saying the same things. In regard to moral code, sure. In regard to the grace of God, no one has it like Jesus. If you have, check this, if you have a heart of humility, you've got a seat at the table. This is what God is showing us through the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus, the Messiah, if you've got a heart of humility and you're willing to repent, you've got a seat at the table in his family, in his story. Man. You're like, what do I do? You say yes. (laughs) You turn and you say, well, if you'll take me, I'm in. It's astounding. Number one, we receive his grace and then we respond by faith. We respond by faith. James reminds us that faith without works is dead. This week, I'd encourage you to do a fruit test. Take a look and say, man, does the, does the root of my faith, evidenced by the fruit of my life, show that it is alive and vibrant, or is it maybe dying or dead? It's a gut check. In case you're wondering, it's deeply biblical. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. He says, man, examine yourself as to whether you're in the faith. Test yourself. Why? Because God's trying to shame you? Heaven? No, because he loves you. And he's like, listen, I want you to know now. Why? Because if you know now, you can make changes. 
If you're there with your microchurch, I hope you have someone that's a good enough friend that you could ask them honestly, hey, man, can you walk me through the fruit test? Like, where, where do you feel like I'm at? And I hope they know you enough and love you enough to encourage you where you might need to be more encouraged than you currently are yeah. and challenge you where you might need to be more challenged than you currently are. Why? Because we all want to grow. We want to get better. God's got a calling. God's got a destiny. God's got a plan for our lives. God can take our jacked up Tamar family background and our horrible Rahab past and do incredible things. If we're just willing to say yes and open up and say, God, change me, help me, grow me. There's this word repent. It's basically a changing of your mind, which precipitates an inevitable changing of your heart and life. It's where we turn. It's where we ask God for forgiveness. And then as your heart shifts, your life begins to shift with it. New habits, new goals, new attitudes, a new mindset, where we get to a point where genuinely on our heart, we begin saying things like, God, I want to say the things you want me to say, and I want to do the things that you say I'm supposed to do, and I want to think the way you say to think, and I want to speak and act the way you say to speak and act. God, I know I can't do this on my own, but help me. And the Bible says he will. He will. If you're like, Pastor John, I've already tried this before. Like, I, there's no way. I, I can't do this alone. You are right. You cannot do this alone, which is why the Bible says you shouldn't even try. This is where we need community. Here at Greenhouse, we call these things microchurches. I realize it's about holiday time, and so we're about to take a break. So fine, make a decision right now in your heart and say, okay, by the end of the month of January, I'm going to be in a microchurch. By the end of the month of January, I, I realize I, my heart's been genuine, Pastor John, I know it, and I really want to change it, I know it, but I can't. Yeah, it's because you need people around you that also are trying to change, that also are trying to grow, that can encourage you when you're feeling discouraged and can challenge you when, let's be honest, you need it. We all need that community around us. Decide right now, okay, by the end of the month of January, I know I've been dodging it and I've gotten invited to 75 microchurches already, and I'm like, oh, I always have an excuse, I'm done. I want to grow. I want to grow. End of January, I'm going to get in the microchurch. I'm going to land it here as the worship team, i.e. Zach with an acoustic guitar. Um, gets, ready to, uh, gets ready to come up here, but I, I've just been struck by, by these two mothers of the Messiah, Tamar and Rahab, because just like them, your hope and my hope and our hope to be written into this story is not based on our performance, our abilities, or our stellar track record. It is based on his grace. And in the midst of studying this passage, I came across something that I had seen in one place but never saw in the other, and it, it blew me away. Rahab is ultimately rescued, and her entire family unit is saved from sure and eminent destruction by what? By a scarlet thread. The spies tell her, hey, listen, we're going to spare your life, but only if and only if you get everybody inside, you close the door, and you hang this scarlet thread from your window. And if that scarlet thread is hung, you will be saved. Does that story sound familiar? Get all your household in, shut the door, and if you put a scarlet mark of the blood of the lamb, are you seeing a type that's forming here? Rahab is ultimately rescued and given refuge with the people of God, remembered in the family of God and entered into the family of God, all because of this scarlet thread. You're like, what's up with that? God loves fabric? No. Because what can wash away my sins? 
nothing but the blood of Jesus. This scarlet thread would not just run down a wall of Jericho, but it would run throughout all the trajectory of human history. And everyone who hangs the scarlet thread on the doorpost of their heart would be rescued. It's all about Jesus. You're like, Pastor John, you definitely spit on the camera, but I think you're taking it a little too far. I don't think so. Go back to Genesis 38. I had never seen this before. See, it's not just Rahab where the scarlet thread makes an appearance. In Genesis 38, it says this, when the time gave birth for her, Tamar, who we just talked about, to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. And as she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist saying, this one came out first. The firstborn was marked by the scarlet thread. This is not an accident. Do you think it's just happenstance and coincidence that these first two mothers of the Messiah referenced in the genealogy of Jesus all of a sudden have a scarlet thread in their story? No, it's because he, Jesus, is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. You're like, Pastor John, why, why do you guys at Greenhouse always talk about Jesus? I mean, it's, it's God and it's just faith. No, friends, because there's no one else like Jesus. He is uniquely holy, sovereign, and set apart. He is the way and the truth and the life. It's Jesus. It's always been Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. And Tamar is all about Jesus and, and Ruth and Rahab and, and all these mothers of the Messiah. It's all about Jesus. He is the hope of nations and he is the hope of your soul. His love, his goodness, his grace by faith. And if you have ears to hear it this morning, he wants to do something incredible in your life. Why don't you join me as we pray? I want to give you an option to respond like we've talked about, by grace, through faith. Maybe you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus. Maybe a friend invited you and you're like, yeah, sure, I'll tune in online. I could do it in my PJs. That sounds good. And and you're like, I, I, John, I'm not a religious person. And I, don't, I don't even know if I believe this stuff, but something's happening in my heart. Like I'm, I started crying at some point. I don't even know these songs. And what is this? It's God. He loves you. He's real. Everything your friend told you about him, that you're like, oh, yeah, it's so good for you. It's not just good for them. It's true for you. He cares about you. Scripture says he's knocking at the door of your heart. What's he looking for? Anyone willing and humble enough to let him in. To say, Jesus, I can't do this on my own anymore. I've tried. I've tried to be good. I've tried to be moral. I've tried to be religious. I've tried to be upright. And I fail every single time. Yeah, welcome to the story of the people of God. Hello, Tamar. Nice to meet you, Rahab. You need Jesus and his grace and his goodness and his love. And it, that's all you need. If you can just turn to him out of desperation, Jesus said he'll make all things new. If you're in this spot right now and you say, I, 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 I want, I'm done with trying to earn my way to God with my best efforts and moral fortitude and my moral resume, it's not enough, friends. It will never be enough. If you want to receive by grace through faith this morning the right standing and forgiveness that only Jesus offers, wherever you're at, I just want you to say, I do. You just look up to heaven and say, I do. I receive it. Jesus, you're the Lord. You're the king. You're the CEO. Help me. Forgive me. Change me. I don't even know what words to say, but I, yes, I'm in. I'm in. You can reach out to the friend who invited you, and I encourage you to do that. Even before, as soon as this broadcast is over, text the friend who invited you. Say, hey, 
God's doing something. Can we talk? If you're like, I just came on a Google search. All right, right now there are people in the chat. We're going to have some of our pastors jump in there. Right now there are people in the chat. You can request prayer. We'll, we'll talk with you, encourage you. We can set up coffee later in the week if you're here in South Florida. We can set up a Zoom call if you're tuning in from some other place. We, we exist to help ordinary, ordinary people like you and I become passionate followers of Jesus. There's nothing we would love more than to jump on a call, meet up with you, and help you walk your faith journey. But maybe you're here and... And you've prayed that prayer. You are a Jesus follower. You've, you've prayed some sort of a prayer, but you're realizing in this moment as you begin to reflect on the fruit test that your root health is poor or maybe it's dying or dead. Here's the great news for you. If you realize that you just prayed a prayer and it was theoretical belief that never truly took hold in your soul, here's the great news. You can repent. Right now. This morning, later on, whenever you're watching this, if it's later on demand, you can choose to say, Jesus, help me, change me, resurrect this dead root and make it come alive. Something along the lines of God, God, I want to be like Rahab. I want to put my faith into action. Help me by grace through living and active faith. Church, I love you. You guys are amazing. Thank you for being so flexible, for joining us online, for shifting your schedules. I hope this was uh, an experience where you sense God's presence. Love you so much. Praying the Lord would bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you, lift up his countenance upon you, and give you shalom, shalom, perfect peace in Jesus' name. God bless you, church, and we will see you next week, God willing, at Western High School right here online. Love you, church. God bless you.